This evening's reading is from Isaiah 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. They will, um, then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever had that feeling of being in the spotlight? All eyes are on me. Or more specifically, all eyes are on me, and I don't really like it. You're all too aware of the people around you. When I was at uni, I had the opportunity to referee half a football match. I say opportunity, misfortune is probably the more accurate word. What happened is the actual ref didn't show up, and uh, both teams agreed that the player from the opposition would ref the first half, and my teammates kindly volunteered me to ref the second half. Now, I don't really know if I made many bad decisions um, or incorrect calls, but the players definitely gave me the impression that I did. And I feared sometimes. I feared what they were shouting at me. Um, I feared what they thought of me. And with every blow of my whistle, every decision that I made, all eyes were on me. I was feeling feelings of disappointment, disapproval, fear. I was all too aware of those around me. Now, perhaps what comes to mind for you when you think about being in the spotlight, being all too aware of those around you, is walking into the workplace or into school. Now, as Josh mentioned, we're getting towards the start of a new academic year. And some of you might have that in the forefront of your mind. The anticipation of walking into a brand new setting. All eyes on me. What will they think of me? When they find out I'm a Christian, what will they think of me? Or maybe you're constantly thinking of what your boss, your university supervisor, or even a family member, what do they think of me? What do they think of the work that I do? When they find out I'm a Christian, will they judge me, cancel me, condemn me? Have a think now. What comes to mind? What context comes to mind where you are all too aware of those around you? And you can see, and can you see how that can lead to maybe fear? Now, it might seem small at this time, or it might be that fear is the exact word you'd use to describe it. 
but you're all too aware of those around you. And that is, at the very least, the seed of fearing those around you. Now, what I haven't mentioned about the football match is that I was partly, and you might uh, say, say wholly to blame for the looks of disapproval and colourful language aimed at me. You see, I'd, I'd already played the first half of the match, and when I play, I, remo I remove my glasses. And um, what I'd fail to, fail to do before I started refereeing is put them back on again. <laughs> Had I done that, uh, I would have been able to see more clearly, and perhaps would have avoided the disappointment, disapproval, and fear. So tonight, and I apologize for this crude segue, um, let's put the glasses on. We're going to see more clearly, um, and in particular, we're going to see God more clearly. Because when we are so aware of God, we can have a healthy awareness of others, one that doesn't lead to fear. And that's what we've been doing these last few weeks, throughout August. We've been seeing God more clearly. God is good. God is great. God is gracious. And tonight, let's see all the more clearly that God is glorious. If you're here tonight and you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian, maybe you don't believe in God at all, or you're just not sure what you think, it's so good that you're here. I genuinely think that this is the best place you could be. Um, here at church, investigating these things, an old Christian author once said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So my prayer for us all tonight is that we see the glorious God as revealed in this book. So I want to pray for God's help as we do this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word. Please, with your Holy Spirit, illuminate this passage and warm our hearts that we might see you more clearly and with that transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. In his, his name we pray. Amen. If you've closed your Bibles, um, open them back up. I think it's page 720. Um, we're in Isaiah 35. Now, Isaiah is a prophet of God, God's uh, messenger, speaking God's message to God's people. He's speaking to God's Old Testament people, and they're currently a kingdom, a nation called Judah. And the people of Judah are all too aware of those around them. They're living under the constant threat, the constant fear of the neighboring Assyrians. Imminent attacks and sieges, they're all too aware of those around them. And it's causing them to question where they put their confidence. And that's one of Isaiah's main messages throughout this whole book. He's been addressing this big issue of faith. When those around you look stronger, more impressive, when you're just all too aware of them, that it leads to fear, where do you put your confidence? Do the people of Judah look to human power, mustering up the courage for themselves to contend with the more powerful nations? Or do they look around and see the other nations and just think, I want a taste of that. I want that security. The security the other nations seem to have, the majesty, the glory that they seem to have. Now, in the previous chapter, chapter 34, um, God, through Isaiah, says no to those attitudes. It's unwise to put your trust in the human power, human glory, because God has already condemned to destruction that part of humanity that trusts in itself. And here, in chapter 35, Isaiah shows how it is wise to trust in God and in his power and his glory. Why? Well, because God promises the everlasting joy of salvation to those who trust in him. And that's a message that would have transformed the lives of those living in Judah. And it's a message that will transform us today. 
Because when we wake up each day and think of all the eyes that will be on us that day, being all too aware of those around us, leading to that fear, we can remember God and his glory. And it would just make sense. Seeing his glory, it would just make sense to wake up each morning and say, yes, God, I trust in you. It would be impossible to be too aware of those around us because we'll be so aware of God, his glory, his power, his majesty. Now, how does this happen? Well, it happens when we see God's glory and then after that, we get to share in God's glory. That's where we're going today. See God's glory, share in God's glory. So first, see God's glory. How does Isaiah address this big issue of faith? Where does Isaiah point God's people? Where does he point us? He points to the glory of God. And seeing this should flood our souls with hope. Look down with me at verses 1 and 2. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord. The splendor of our God. Now it's not quite been the summer that some of us wanted, weather-wise, that is. Um, the thought of more rain might not excite you. Um, but cast your mind back, if you can, to that summer a few years ago. Do you remember the one? Um, scorching heat, weeks without rain. Um, and I remember seeing a satellite image, I don't know if you saw it as well, of the UK. It was quite something. This normally green and pleasant land was brown and parched. From north to south, east to west, could have been, mis- could have been mistaken for the Kalahari Desert. Compare that to the green we see around us now. And that's on the way to getting our heads around this wonderful transformation we see in verses 1 and 2. The transformation that God achieves. First one, the desert and parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and bloom. Isaiah uses these nature terms to show a wonderful transformation. And that helps us see something of the wonder of God's salvation. Verse 2, like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly. And shout for joy. Now, I'm no expert in flowers, um, but I have it on good authority that the Chelsea Flower Show is the place to go if you want to see the beauty, the colour, the variety of flowers in bloom. And just look to my left and right as well. And Isaiah says, think of the Chelsea Flower Show, but on the scale of a nation, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendour of Carmel and Sharon, places of beauty, abundance, fertility. This is the wonder of God's salvation. And what's the source of this wonderful salvation, this amazing transformation? End of verse 2. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. The source is God himself, the glorious God. Now these verses and this passage as a whole, I think leaves a question hanging. And that's a question of when. You can imagine the people of Judah hearing these words, imagining this wonderful transformation and thinking, this sounds incredible. But when will it happen? When will we see God's glory? Now, when it comes to fulfillment in the Old Testament, there's a few different ways to understand it. Um, But one's thinking about mountain peaks. You might have heard this before. Um, Mountain peaks. Now, I remember remember once uh, climbing a mountain in Scotland as a child on a very wet and foggy day. Probably asking the question, are we at the top yet? For the whole climb because every time I looked up I saw a peak and I and that spurred me on to go towards that peak but then I get to the top of the peak and I look up and there'd be another peak 
I couldn't see it behind the first peak. There was always another one there until you got to the top. Now, I wonder if the first peak, this first partial fulfillment uh, for this, these people in Judah, um, would have been after the Assyrians captured um, the capital of Judah and only to be defeated not too long after. Or the next peak later on, the people of Judah are taken into exile, but they see something of God's glory, his deliverance when they return. Or the next peak, the main peak, you might say, jumping ahead to the New Testament. John, in his gospel, writes of Jesus showing up on earth. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. When we see Jesus, we see God's glory. More on that later on. Um, But maybe the final, final peak, the final culmination, fulfillment, is not until Jesus returns and brings with him that new creation that we will fully experience uh, in the joy of God's salvation. That we will fully see God's glory. Now we see in part, but then we will see in full. Now what does seeing God's glory do? Well, let's think back to God's people in Judah. How they must be feeling. With Assyria building strength right on their border. They must be feeling full of fear, full of weakness. But they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. And what does that do? Have a look down at verse 3 with me. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Hands tremble and knees wobble no longer. Their circumstances haven't changed yet, but they have been pointed to God and in what he will do. Do you see that repeated again and again there? Your God will come. He will come. He will come to save you. They will see the glory of God, and they do not fear because of what God will do. Now think back to what came to mind at the start. When are you all too aware of those around you? To the point where it could, or maybe already has, led to fear. The people of Judah do not fear because of what God will do. And we do not fear because of what God has done. The glorious God, the one who is holy, 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 is acting and has acted to give his people a sight, a taste of his glory. And he is acting to give his people a share in his glory. See God's glory, share in God's glory. Verses 5 to 10, moving on to now. Um, And there's a trajectory in these verses, verses 5 to 10. A people and a place on the way to everlasting joy in God's glorious and future kingdom. Look down with me from verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs, in the halts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. It's a perfected place, full of perfected people. Isaiah is saying that jetting off to Costa della Syria will not solve anything. An all-inclusive cruise across the Dead Sea is not the answer, God will bring about his kingdom with abundant life and health. 
Think of those people of Judah, feeling weak and full of fear. Listen to these words. And for them, they were just that. They were simply words. They were God's words, yes. Words of truth and words of life. But how much more have we got to look to? How much more have we seen God's glory as revealed in Jesus? What a privileged position we are in. Jesus' words and Jesus' works are a walking and talking taste of that paradise. There's no need to turn there, but in Matthew 11, some people ask Jesus if he is the one they should be expecting. Jesus replies with words which should sound familiar. Go back, he says, and report what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus' words and Jesus' works are a walking and talking taste of this paradise. Everything that Jesus does shows us something of God's glory. And where do we see God's glory most clearly? When he turned water into wine? When he fed the 5,000 with just a small packed lunch? When he calmed a mighty storm with just a word? When he raised a dead man to life? Or was it on that hill, just outside the city walls, where betrayed and beaten and bloodied, he hung on a cross for the world to see? As we eat this bread and drink this wine in just a few moments, we remember the glory of the cross. God's mighty act to show his glory and bring his people in to share in his glory. Who can judge? Who can cancel? Who can condemn those who are in Christ Jesus? Who can bring any charge against God's people? No one. What can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord? Nothing. Our glorious God is acting to give his people a taste of his glory. And our glorious God is acting to give his people a share in his glory. That is where we're heading. That is where our confidence lies. In that do we have certain hope. And we see that in those final few verses. Verses 8 and 9, look down with me. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed who walk there. We can persevere on that road of faith, because that way belongs to us. Those who, whose eyes have been opened, those who have seen God's glory, when we're all too aware of those around us, when we fear those around us, we can be full of confidence. Not in ourselves, but in our glorious God, who acts to give his people a taste of his glory. Our glorious God, who acts to give his people a share in his glory. And we can be confident that is where we're heading. Because on the cross, Jesus cried, it is finished. He has done the work. We'll remember that later on. It is finished. We're just going to finish 
by enjoying verse 10. Look down with me. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. A moment of quiet and then I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are the almighty God of glory. Thank you for revealing yourself through Jesus, your son. Help us by your spirit when we are all too aware of those around us, when we feel weak and full of fear to fix our eyes on you and on what you have done for our good and for your glory. Amen.